Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It is very good to see you. Um, I will say this. Uh, as of about three hours ago, I thought y'all were going to be able to see me, and I was not going to be able to see you. You're like, what's that all about? Uh, I had a, um, an exposure to COVID this week. Uh, waited five days. I actually didn't find out about it until the fifth day. Got tested, waiting on my results. And as of like 7.30, 8 o'clock this morning, I had no results. And if I was not having results and I was having no symptoms, I was going to get to preach from my office, quarantined. And y'all were going to watch me on the screen. But thankfully, I got my results a couple hours ago. And I'm negative, which is very good news because uh, I get to be here with y'all. And that means anybody I was around this week, I didn't give you anything. Uh, except for maybe some of my weirdness. And also, um, that means I get to go uh, on a thousand mile trip starting this afternoon as we take our oldest daughter uh, up to practically Ohio as she gets ready to start college. So it's been a very emotional week, uh, especially the last 36 hours as I didn't know if I was gonna be able to go or not. And I am so thankful uh, that I get to go on that trip. So anyway, I am Alan. I am the pastor here and one of the elders here. I should say I'm one of the pastors, but I'm, uh, I'm the, the senior pastor here and one, and one of the elders. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, uh, because you're here in the building and we didn't cross paths yet, I'd love to have a chance to meet you this morning when we dismiss. If I've not had a chance to meet you because you're joining us online and we've never met before, uh, we are just grateful that you're with us as well. Uh, I've got some new friends here today. In fact, uh, one of my good friends, it's, uh, he and I are 20 days apart. We love the same things. We love sports. We love Dr. Pepper. We know it's God's drink. I'm trying to get him to cheer for the Cowboys instead of for the Texans, but my good friend Tim is here today, and many of you are here as well, and we are thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today. Uh, we are in the middle of a series. Uh, we're, we're walking through the New Testament this year, uh, chapter by chapter, five chapters a week, uh, seeking to read through the entire New Testament together as a church family. If you've got a worship guide, you'll see at the bottom of that, we're jumping over into 1 Timothy uh, this next week. I believe 1 Timothy has six chapters, so we'll cover chapters one through five this week, and then we'll pick up the sixth one uh, next week. But we are walking through the New Testament together. You may be wondering, well, what are we going to do next year? And here's the answer. Next year, we are going to jump into, uh, in January, I'm not sure which one, but we're going to jump into one of the books of the Bible, and we're going to walk through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we're going to be able to really kind of dive in a little bit deeper in some of God's Word together as a church family. Looking forward to 2022. Not trying to get 2021 over too fast, but I am looking forward to 2022. But right now, today, we are in Hebrews. And before I jump into Hebrews, I wanted to share with you, you may see the title on the sermon notes says that it is Jesus, high priest of the good things. And when I think of good things, uh, here's one thing I think of. I think of my hope group. I love our hope group. We, we meet on Thursday evenings right now, and uh, we usually sometimes uh, have good food to eat. Uh, what I mean by that is we don't always eat food. When we do eat, it's always good. Uh, but at a party that we were at the other day, as we were saying goodbye to one of our Hope Group members, Devon, as she was moving uh, to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we had a party. We had, that means we had lots of desserts and snacks and sugar, and I was super excited. And I walked in, and I was like, okay, all right, I'm looking forward to the good stuff. Anybody bring the red velvet cake? Silence. Uh, anybody bring the coat of cream pie? Silence. Anybody bring the Texas sheet cake? Silence. And I was like, oh my goodness, the good things are not here. What am I going to eat? 
And so I went over there and I looked and sure enough, one of my dear Hope Group member friends, Judy, knows me well. And there was some German chocolate cake, muffin kept cupcake things that are to die for. And I said, thank you. We have the good things. Whenever I think of good things, I think of sugar. And you may realize that's uh, kind of crazy, but that's what I like. Uh, when I think of the good things, I, I, I picture it this way. When I get to heaven, there's going to be a never-ending fountain drink of Dr. Pepper and a big old piece of red velvet cake for me to eat while I sit in my chair and watch God's team, the Dallas Cowboys, play football. I mean, that is the epitome of the good things, right? The reality is this. Whenever we think of good things, all too often, we think of the good things that are our liking, the things that we want, and we make it about us. In fact, you remember that song that we used to sing, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you. The words are not very complicated. It's very simple, pure words that are true. You know the song, God is so good, right? God is so good, God is so good, God is so good, he's so good to me. And there's different verses that just kind of repeat that, that refrain. And all too often, whenever we think about how God is good, we, we, we associate that with as long as life is going good for me. Like, God is good because he's given me a nice house. God is good because he's given me a good job. God is good because I was negative on my COVID test. God is good because, and we list all of these things that are for us. It's me-centered. It's not what it means to say that God is good. Look with me, if you don't mind, in Hebrews chapter 9. The reason this focus on this word good is found at the beginning of verse 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we've got Bibles in the chairs around you and near you. You can grab a copy and, and, and use that. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to take this home with you, we'd love to give it to you as a gift. But you'll see in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Depending on your translation, it may say the good things that are to come. Uh, just to kind of let you know, we have lots of copies that are ancient copies of God's word. However, not all of them are necessarily completely intact because weather does not always uh, do well with books and with, with scrolls, right? And so the scholars will find different uh, scrolls uh, and sometimes one of the verb tenses or whatever may be a little bit different than in another manuscript. And so in many of the manuscripts, it has this phrase, the good things that have come, whereas in some of the manuscripts, and so therefore maybe your translation may say, the good things that are to come. Either way, the, the truth of the matter is that the good things of life come from Jesus, who is our high priest. So this morning, we're going to look at a few verses. We're just going to look at four specifically, and we're going to try to figure out what are the good things that Jesus brings to us. Before we kind of dive in specifically to that, I want to set up Hebrews chapter 9. In the book of Hebrews, we have an author that we're not really sure who is the author because it doesn't tell us, but we have an author that's trying to appeal to an audience to help them understand who Jesus is and how Jesus is supreme or superior to anything and everything else, including the religious system and customs and rituals that they were accustomed to within their Judaism. 
and that Jesus is better than, and he's actually what the Old Testament was pointing towards. And so we find that theme, especially in chapters 1 through 10, and then 11 through 13 kind of take a little bit of a change, but specifically verses, chapters 1 through 10 address this issue that Jesus is supreme or superior to everything else. And if you, if you don't mind, you can glance at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9. I'm not going to read them right now, but you may want to glance them uh, over them real quickly. And, and here's what's going on in these 10 verses. Uh, he describes the first covenant, the old covenant. He describes how things were under the law. He describes a tent or a tabernacle, same word, for uh, what it was like in the Old Testament. He, he describes how they worshipped God at the tabernacle or the tent or the synagogue as God's people. He describes how, how the, the temple courtyard, the 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 the, the the courtyard was available there, and then within the courtyard or past the courtyard, there was a, a closed-off section. And that this closed-off section was for the priests to do their work. In fact, the closed-off section actually had two sections to it. There were curtains that divided uh, the whole thing from the courtyard, and then once you got to the front curtain, you could go a few feet in, and if you were a priest, and then there would be another curtain dividing off another section. Depending on your translation, it may phrase it differently, but typically they're referred to as the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And, and in chapters, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, it describes that. Within the holy place, the priests could come and go and do their duties and serve God and serve the people by offering sacrifices. And it describes how they did this on a regular basis. But to go beyond that into the inner sanctuary, if you will, to go to the most holy place, it was clear. The Old Testament tells us this. Hebrews reminds us of this, that only one man could go inside of there and he could only do so one day a year. The high priest was the only one that was allowed to go into the most holy place. He was only able to go one day a year on the Day of Atonement to offer the sacrifice for the people. And this was kind of the setup that they were accustomed to. And yet, we find out that Jesus is superior to the whole plan and that whole system. In fact, we find out that that system was lacking. I want us to look at one sentence. It's found at the uh, kind of halfway point of verse 9, and would you look at it with me? Uh, halfway point of verse 9, ending in verse 10. It says this, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices, sorry, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He says these offerings are, are given, but it's lacking something. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but, verse 10, deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, reformation, that word's going to be different in your translation perhaps, but in the ESV it has reformation. What he's saying is this, the Old Testament system, the, the first covenant, as important as it was, in reality, it could only handle the outward ritualistic cleansing and it did not bring the fullest inward cleansing that was needed that instead it's pointing to the greater one that was coming and that is Jesus himself it only dealt with a purification ritual 
It wasn't permanent, it wasn't full, it wasn't lasting, and in fact they had to repeat it on a daily basis with some of the sacrifices in the Day of Atonement on a yearly basis. And so we have a pivotal word that's going to show up at the beginning of verse 11. Look with me at verse 11, the word but. Anytime you see the word but, B-U-T, in Scripture, pay attention. It's not there to just kind of be a filler word. It's there to say, hey, this next part is in contrast to something else that you just read. So if you take the time maybe this afternoon to read verses 1 through 10, you're going to see a full explanation of how the Old Testament system was set up and how it fell short, but with Jesus, everything changes. But with Jesus, everything changes. Look at verse 11. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. It says, but when Christ appeared, and he's going to begin to describe Jesus much like the old system, except for now he's the perfect system. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, this tent is not made with hands, that is, it is not of this creation. It says that he, the high priest, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, he's describing all of the Old Testament uh, sacrificial um, ceremonial cleansings, he says, if all of that is done, if that can sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That word, but, is critical. He begins this whole theme in verses 11 through 14 by contrasting everything we just read in verses 10 or talked about I should say in verse 10 verses 1 through 10 into what is being read there in verses 11 through 14. It contrasts Jesus who is the new covenant. He is the new covenant. It contrasts him with the old covenant. It contrasts the fact that the Old Covenant was was temporary, that it was pointing to something to come. It it was something that was imperfect, and how with Jesus, he is the one who was to come. He is the one that was promised. He is the Messiah, the Christ, and therefore he ushers in the perfect covenant. So I want us to see what are the good things that Jesus brings? What is it about Jesus and what he brings that is perfect that, that is beyond or in contrast to the old covenant and what does that mean to our lives and how should we respond accordingly. Uh, on the back of your sermon notes or the back of your worship guide is your sermon notes and you'll see three main points. We want to walk through each one of them. The first one is this, that Jesus brings eternal redemption. Jesus brings eternal redemption. Look at the end of verse 12. That phrase is literally there. It says, thus Jesus secures an eternal redemption. Redemption. So what is redemption? Redemption simply means to be delivered from or to be set free from. It means to be delivered from sin. It means to be set free from sin. It means that we are set free from sin in the sense that we are no longer guilty of sin. And it also means that we are set free from the power or the penalty or the power and the penalty for sin. With Jesus, 
he provides something unique that the old covenant could not do and that is that his redemption is permanent his redemption is eternal and that redemption is the redemption from sin and its power and its guilt in our lives so how is Jesus's redemption that is eternal provided to us it again is unique from what the other high priests did what did the other priests and high priests do in the Old Testament if you don't remember it's found there in verses 1 through 10 and we read briefly about it in verse 12 or 13 and the idea is that the Old Testament system was that the priest would come in he would come in with the the the, the goat or the bull or with the ashes from the heifer he would cleanse certain things he would do certain things he would say certain prayers and that these sacrifices and the blood that came from them would temporarily forgive that sin until they needed to repeat that sacrifice but Jesus offers a completely different sacrifice, and that is that Jesus offers himself. The high priest offers himself by dying for our sin, taking upon himself the punishment for our sin, and thereby only having to do so once and not over and over and over and over again. So with Jesus, there is eternal redemption. And that redemption is available because of his life, because of his death, because of his burial, and because of his resurrection. So I want to talk for just a second about why, why is it? Like, it, it sounds so messy. Like, if we were alive in the Old Testament days, can you imagine the stench that's probably coming from that tabernacle or from that tent as they're sacrificing tons and tons of animals? It just isn't a very pretty picture. You're like, if only I could have COVID and lose my sense of smell when I walk past the temple and everything else is okay. That way I don't have to smell all of those sacrifices or see all of that blood running down. That sounds so messy and nasty. And then whenever you think about Jesus, he did it once and for all. But can you imagine the agony that he experienced on the cross and the blood that poured out? And maybe you've seen the movie The Passion or other things that try to depict what it might have looked like. Sounds so messy and so unnecessary, and why so full of death? Well, the Bible is very clear. The Bible is clear that God is holy and perfect, that he has an expectation for every single one of us, and that expectation is that we would obey him fully, completely, and perfectly. Last time I checked, ain't nobody in this room pulling that off. You're like, but I'm better than my neighbor. Like, I haven't, have you seen what my neighbor does? Like, his dog comes in my yard and takes care of business. He never cleans it up. That's a pretty disgusting behavior from my neighbor. I don't think that neighbor's very nice. Like, I'm a lot better than them. And then you could think of other things maybe of comparison, right? But the reality is we're not on a comparison, person A to person B. We're on a comparison of God's standards, and God's standard says perfection. None of us can pull that off. The Bible says that because of our sins, disobedience towards God, that we are dead. That we are separated eternally, completely, absolutely from God. That we cannot be in relationship with him. That our relationship is severed because of our sin. And so therefore, God 
came up with a solution from the beginning of time, before eternity even began. I mean, while before the world was created, he knew what he would do. And that solution was ultimately his son Jesus coming to die for our sins. And he also knew that before that, prior to that, that there would be the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system that would be set up pointing towards the coming Messiah. See, the reality is something, someone has to die because of sin. And in order for our sins to be forgiven, something still has to die so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God. So in the Old Testament, as they sacrificed these animals, it really wasn't about the animal being sacrificed. Rather, it was about their faith or obedience to God, which that sacrifice was pointing to the coming Savior of the world, Jesus Christ himself. So for you and I, if we realize that we are a sinner, if we realize that we have no redemption or hope outside of Jesus, then we can place our faith and our trust in Jesus and him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And I just believe that there are people in this room right now, there are people watching online right now, that you are going to an old well that doesn't work, never has, it's always been broken, and it's the idea that if I can just clean up my act enough, if I can just be a good boy or a good girl, if I can just say the right things, if I can just look good on the outside, if I can just kind of clean myself up a little bit, if I can just follow the holy rituals, then I'll be good with God, but all of those fall short. The only way to a relationship with God is through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and was raised again on the third day. So my question is, this morning, would you trust in an eternal redemption that is available through Jesus and him alone? So we talk about this eternal redemption that's available through Jesus. Look down in verse 12. In verse 12, there's a phrase here that says, once for all, once for all, that he entered into the holy place. He did this sacrifice of himself, Jesus did, once and for all. What does this mean, once for all? Well, it's in contrast to what we see in some verses previously. Look up real quickly in verse 5, I'm mean, sorry, verse 6. As it's talking about the priests who bring about sacrifices, it, it says that they would do this on a regular basis. The priests go regularly into the first section. And then in verse 7, it describes the high priest going in to perform the, the day of atonement sacrifice. And it says that it, he went once a year. So the old system meant that some sacrifices had to be done once a year. Other sacrifices had to be done on a regular basis. And yet with Jesus, it's once and done, once for all. I want to kind of highlight some aspects about how once for all really matters to you and I. What this eternal redemption looks like. First of all, once for all means literally it's one time. Jesus died and was resurrected one time. It's completely effective. He completed his work. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? There's seven recorded uh, phrases of Jesus on the cross. One of them is, uh, it is finished. Because he had come to do the work that his father had sent him to do, and that was to die for our sins and be raised again, and he completed that work. So once for all is that aspect. Once for all means it's for all time. That means both those that came before Jesus came to the earth. Jesus has always been in existence because he's God. But before he came to earth, those that trusted in God were actually trusting through the eternal redemption that's available through Jesus. So once for all means that his sacrifice was effective for those 
that came before him and those that came after him. Once for all means it's effective for all people. That doesn't mean all people trust in Jesus, but for those who choose to trust in Jesus, that God works in their heart and they receive Jesus, that salvation is effective. It doesn't matter the color of their skin, doesn't matter who they vote for, doesn't matter where they live on the planet, doesn't matter their age, doesn't matter their gender, doesn't matter anything. There's no exception to the fact that Jesus' death is acceptable for all people of all people groups. No one is excluded except those who choose not to receive salvation through Jesus. Once for all also, I want to mention one more aspect of that. It means that all of our sins are forgiven. Sometimes we struggle with this and we're like, okay, so does that mean if I become a Christian and then I sin again, I can lose my salvation? No. Because when Jesus died, how many of your sins had you technically committed at that point? Absolutely zero, right? When you trusted in Jesus, you're trusting in him to forgive you completely, totally, absolutely of all of your sins. Once for all means that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was effective to forgive you of all your sins. Past, current, future, minor, little bitty white lies or humongous big old sins. Now, hang with me. Don't think that that means we can just go out and live however we want to because all of our sins are forgiven and you've got a free pass to live life like you want to. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that his death is effective. His death, burial, and resurrection is effective to forgive you of all of your sins. As we talk about how Jesus brings eternal redemption, remember that it's his work. It's not your work. He's the one that brings redemption, not yourself, not your efforts, not your wishes, not your plans. He secures our redemption. Look at verse 12. Who brings this, the, the eternal redemption? It says that Jesus secures an eternal redemption. It's his work. So, that's the first aspect that I want us to see. The good things that Jesus brings is he brings eternal redemption. I want to kind of unpack this a little bit further. Look at the next main point on your sermon notes to say that Jesus brings, uh, brings eternal redemption means that he completely sets us free from our sin. He completely sets us free from our sin. Look back at verse 9. As it describes the Old Testament system and the sacrifices that are offered, it says these gifts and sacrifices are offered, but they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What that means is, that while they were effective to forgive them of their sins, it wasn't complete and total because they still struggled with that guilty conscience. Their conscience wasn't completely clear. They couldn't regard themselves as free from sin's guilt because why? Next year, same time, they'd have to have another day of atonement. There was a repetition to it. They didn't experience, yes, their sins were forgiven, but they didn't experience the fullness of that redemption because of the repetitious nature of the ongoing sacrificial system that was required. Look down at verse 14, and we see with Jesus a totally different experience. It says at the end of verse 14 that Jesus, through his work, purifies our conscience. So there's a contrast, a rich contrast between verse 9 and verse 14. With Jesus, we have completely been set free from our sin with no mixture of, oh, well, what about this or that? 
I love the word picture that Paul sets up in verse 13 and 14. Look at the first words of both of those sentences, both of those verses. Verse 13 and verse 14. Look at verse 13 as he describes the sacrificial system. He says, for if these systems brought purification of the flesh, that's at the end of verse 13, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ be effective? He's saying, comparatively speaking, the Old Testament system worked, but how much more effective and experientially wonderful is what Christ did for us? You see, Jesus brings complete, absolute, total freedom from guilt of our sin. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. You got to remember that chapters 1 through 10 kind of repeat some things. They have a current, they have a recurring theme throughout them. And so when you jump over to chapter 10, it's still kind of talking about the difference between Jesus and the Old Testament sacrifices. In verse 3, it's referencing the Old Testament sacrifices. It says, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So he's saying their sins were forgiven, yes. But every year, you know, you and I look forward to uh, December 25th, unless you're a mom and dad, now you're buying all the Christmas presents, uh, unless Santa comes through for you, although we know different. But anyway, we'll leave it at that. Um, (laughs) We look forward to December 25th, right? Because we get to get presents, or we get to get stuff, or we get to spend time with family, or whatever. It's a good memory for most of us. Now, I get that some of you, December 25th may be a poor memory. Maybe growing up was difficult. Maybe a death happened near uh, Christmas, and so Christmas is trying and difficult for you. But theoretically, in a perfect world, we look forward to that day. It's a, it's, a, it's a good memory of a day, right? Well, for the people of Israel, they looked forward to the Day of Atonement because they felt the guilt of their sin, and they knew that the sin needed to be washed away again, and they needed to do this again. And so every year when they celebrated Day of Atonement, it was a good day, and yet as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3, in that very sacrifice, it's a reminder of their sins year after year after year after year. But the good news is that with Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection is absolutely atoning for your sins. So there's freedom and innocence and, and guilt-freeness, if that's a word, in your conscience. This phrase, how much more, in verse 14, carries with it. How extensive, how to a, a greater degree. It surpasses others. It's greater than anything you can imagine. There is absolutely no real comparison between the Old System and the New Testament because how much greater is Jesus? Guys and gals, how much greater is Jesus than the things in our lives? For some of us, when we think about when things are great, we think about our wallets. We think about our money. We think about our bank account. We think about our retirement account. Is it going up or going down? And and if it's got a lot of money in it, boy, we feel good about ourselves, right? For some of us, it might be, as long as at home, it's, it's, it's peaceful and happy and everyone loves one another. Don't get me wrong. That's a good thing to experience. But sometimes we think that that's the epitome of where full happiness and greatness happens. 
For some of us, it might be, as long as I get that job, as long as I have the right friends, as long as I, 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 my sports team wins a championship, as long as the Aggies go here or there, as long as I, I succeed at this thing, this, this, this adventure that I'm taking part in. As long as things go my way, that's what I'm looking for. But the fact of the matter is that all of those things pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. He is greater than anything or anyone else. He's greater. Stop trusting in things that are empty. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. I, I want to point one thing out as I make reference to the fact that with Jesus, he brings complete freedom from the penalty and consequence of sin. I want us to see that it's only because of the work of the triune God that that's possible. It's only because of the work of the Trinity. I want you to look at verse 14. Did you see that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in verse 14? It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, there's the Son, Jesus Christ, how much the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, that's the Father. So we see that our redemption is, yes, the work of Christ, but we see that it's also the work of the triune God. It's the Trinity at work. It's the blood of Christ. It's through the Holy Spirit. It's offered to God the Father. Trust in the triune God. You're like, oh my goodness, you just opened up a can of worms. Like, what is the triune God? I don't even use that word. What's the Trinity? I haven't seen that word in, in Scripture before. Yes, the word Trinity is not in Scripture, but yes, at the same time, the Trinity himself is very clearly in Scripture from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21 and everywhere in between. And we see him show up again here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, that, that the Trinity does the work in our lives that we need forgiveness of, of our sins. So, those two aspects are the good things that Jesus brings as the high priest. He brings a redemption that happens to be eternal, and because he brings eternal redemption, he brings uh, a conscience freeing um, uh, where we're set free completely from our sin. And so my question now is, how are we to respond to those good things? The answer is found in verse 14. Look at the end of verse 14, and here's what it says. Or actually, I'm going to read all of verse 14. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what are we to do, or what is the outcome, or what is the response, or what is the result of experiencing an eternal redemption that completely sets us free in God? And that answer is found there on your sermon notes that we are to respond by serving God. The proper, the only, the expected answer to our uh, realization of the good things that come through eternal redemption that completely sets us free from sin is that you and I are called by God to serve him. Why are we purified from our conscience? To serve the living God, it says there in verse 14. Now, depending on your translation, 
I know the NET, which is the New English Translation, and some others actually do not have the word serve. They have the word worship there. And you may be going, okay, so why is worship here? Why is serve there? What's the deal there? I'm going to answer that question hopefully here in just a second. But what I want us to see is first and foremost, it says that we move from dead works and we move to serve the living God. We can choose to either try to get our works to save us or because of our salvation, we choose to then begin to live out good works. We don't do good works for salvation, but we do good works and live out our faith in Jesus by serving him and serving others because of what he has done as a response to our salvation. Now this word serve that is found in the ESV and many other translations, as I said, is, is translated uh, worship in other places, and, and this is why. Because the word serve here carries with it in the Greek to minister or to serve according to religious duties. So it's actually kind of a picture of a priest going to the temple to serve God. Well, why, what is he doing? Yes, he's serving God, but it's also an act of worship, right? It's a way to encourage others to worship as well. And so it, it's actually both of those words are accurate, serving or worshiping, because it's the same difference, if you will. It's the idea of religious duties, responsibilities, not just a legalistic transaction, but something that's genuine from our heart as we seek to worship God similarly... Uh, I can't say that word, in a similar fashion as to how priests would be serving God and worshiping God there in the temple. In fact, if you look up at verse 1, you'll see the word worship if you're in the ESV. If you look down in verse 6, you'll see the phrase ritual duties as it references the priests. It's, it, it, these are nouns, worship and ritual duties. Both of those words are the same exact word as we see for the word serve in the Greek, okay? The word serve down in, in verse 14 is a verb. It's the same word, though, up in the description of what the priests are doing when it uses nouns to describe their activities. Now, there's another, um, another use of that word. Perhaps you're familiar with this verse. Have you heard of Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Romans 12, 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what it says in the ESV. The word worship here, same word. The word worship here is the same word as we see in verse 14 when it says that we are to serve God. Romans 12 makes it clear that serving God or worshiping God means to give ourselves, our lives, our entire being as a living sacrifice to God. So how do we respond to the very fact that Jesus himself does all of the work and through his work he brings eternal redemption, he sets us free from our sin. The response to that is that we worship him by serving him, by offering our lives as a living sacrifice to him. That should be our response. But all too often, I think we leave this step off. We say, you know what? My sins are forgiven. I got my get out of free jail, get out of free jail, get out of jail free card, and I can go about my business. Like Alan a moment ago said, all my sins were forgiven. My past sins, my current sins, my future sins, that means I'm good to go. I can kind of live life however I want to. My sins are forgiven. I can do my thing. The reality is this, yes, our sins are forgiven. 
but we're called and commanded to now go out and live out our faith by obeying God, by offering our lives as a sacrifice, as serving him, by worshiping him with our very lives. Don't leave this out of the equation. Perhaps here at church you'll hear us talk about, hey, we've got some slots we'd like to fill. Like, we need you to serve somewhere. We need you to serve in preschool. There's a need there, and that's an actual need. Like, I'm not just making up a fictitious thing. Like, preschool needs more volunteers that love Jesus and love kids that are members of our church that could serve on a regular basis. Same thing could be said for children's infusion. In fact, this morning, because of a sickness in somebody, they had to combine those two classrooms. But it'd be nice if we had a, an excess of leaders that we could pull from, that we could have more children's workers. I know that in hospitality that, that Chad would love to get more of you involved in serving. And the list could go on and on. College and young adults, I mean, the list could go on and on. But here is the deal. Our focus is never, hey, we got slots to fill. Like, we need somebody to fill this thing so that the church can continue to do its work. No, we want you to serve somewhere less because we need a slot filled and more because you are called by God to serve him, right? And so to serve within the life of our church family is actually living out what we see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, and that is that we are purified from our sin in order that we might go out and serve the living God. Had a conversation with a friend of mine this week, and sharing with me about some things going on and how he needed some help from church family to pull some things off. And the reality is this, in that moment, for various reasons, we as a church body just didn't respond to the needs like we needed to. The reality is we have got to do a better job of serving one another because serving one another means we're serving God and his kingdom, right? I mean, right? God's calling us to serve here within our church family, out there among our church family and out there in our community and there are lots of ways to do it. Let us serve God by serving one another, by being obedient to his call on our lives that we may lay our lives down as a living sacrifice for God. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read one verse in just a minute, but it's a story. It's a parable where Jesus is describing what it looks like to follow him. To follow him means that we feed the hungry, means we visit those who are sick. It means we clothe the naked, and the list goes on and on. Maybe you're familiar with that story as Jesus talks about the parable where the sheep and the goats are separated. But the verse I wanted to hear is 2540, Matthew 2540. Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And to, so to serve the living God means that we are serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. To serve the living God means that we also serve the world that's around us that needs to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. You see, we have been given an eternal redemption that sets us completely free, but it calls us to take the step of obedience to live a life that is a life of service and worship to God. My question is, are we going to do it? I've got three main areas I want you to zoom in, in and think about applying this message. And each one of these three apply to the corresponding main points of the sermon. The first one is this. Some of you this morning, your next step is to receive 
the eternal redemption of Jesus Christ that's offered. Stop trying to do it on your own. Say yes to Jesus today. I don't care if you've been a member here for 20 years. If you've never said yes to Jesus, say yes to him today. I don't care if you've been in the building for one hour and you've never been to church in your life beyond that. If you are ready to say yes to Jesus, say yes to him today. Stop trying to live life your own way, headed to destruction and death and eternal separation from God and say yes to the eternal redemption that's available through Jesus and him alone. That's the first step that you could take today. You may be wondering, well, how, how do I take these steps? As, before I list the other two, here, here's, here's a couple ways that you can take the steps I'm listing today. You could pull out a connection card. You could jot down on the prayer request side anything that you're doing today. You can drop that in the offering box in a moment. You can do this online as well so we can have a record of it so we can reach out to you. In a moment when I'm standing up here up front, you could come and share with me whatever's going on. You could pray there at your seat. You could pull your hope group leader aside. You could find one of our elders or one of our deacons. You could do lots of different things, but respond as God leads you. So the first possible application next step would be this, receive the redemption that's available through Jesus. How about the second one? The second one, remember how I said that Jesus sets us completely free from our sin? So here's the next step, number two, walk in the truth. If you've received God's redemption through Jesus Christ, walk in that truth, that you're completely redeemed. In other words, it's once for all. You, you can't lose your salvation. That doesn't mean live life like ever you want to, but don't be scared to death. Am I, are my sins forgiven? Yes, like if he's forgiven you your sins, they're all forgiven. Live in the confidence of that. Don't try to continue to earn God's love because we can't earn his love anyway. And then I'd encourage you to enjoy living in that clear or clean conscience. For some of you as Christians, you can't really live in a clean conscience because you're active in sin right now. Yes, you've been forgiven of the penalty of that sin, but you're still sucked into the power of that sin and you're, you're living a habitual life of sin. Today, you need to repent of that sin and begin to live in that clean conscience that God brings through the redemption through Jesus Christ. And then the third possible next step is this. I'm going to encourage you to find ways to serve God. If all of this is done so that we can live a life of obedience that involves serving God, then we've got to step out and begin to serve him. Many of you are serving. Many of you are not. Many of you have served in the past, and perhaps you've hit pause. Maybe COVID has been confusing. Maybe life circumstances have made it difficult. Maybe there's something that I'm unaware of. Maybe there's been some past hurt and you want to come and pray with me. Anything that will begin to open that door back up so that we can get active in serving God like he's called us to serve him. That should be here in this church. That should be out in our community. That should be in our neighborhood. That should be in our homes. Basically anywhere, anytime we should be an open vessel for God to use so that we can serve him as we serve others as well. It's a life of worship that is a life set up in obedience to the things that God's leading us to do. I, I don't know where God is leading you in this moment, but I would encourage you to say yes to him this morning. Yes to salvation. Yes to being reminded that your sins are completely forgiven, but maybe needing to repent of some sin that you're holding on to still. And then saying yes to living for him and serving him in a life of obedience. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and here's what I'm going to ask of you.
unless there is some kind of emergency, please don't leave your seat to leave out the back door. Instead, stay in here as we worship and sing together as a church family, as we prayerfully consider the things from God's Word, and then we respond accordingly, whether that be on our connection card or there at your seat or sending a text to someone about whatever's going on or coming to pray here at the front at the altar or to come to pray with, with me. But please, let's allow God to do His work in this moment. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the eternal, complete redemption that's available through jesus alone god i thank you for clean and clear consciences that come because of that and yet at the same time god i acknowledge that there may be some of us that need to uh, uh, repent of sin that that we're still holding on to god i pray for those that have not trusted in jesus for salvation that today would be that day god i pray for those that are uh, not serving uh, you in this church or out in the community or in their own home or in their neighborhoods or in the wherever they happen to be, God, I pray that you'd bring conviction that we might begin to say yes, that we might begin to serve you and worship you with our very lives. God, I pray that you would take these next few moments, speak to our hearts, and that we would respond with confidence and say yes to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?